House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mr. Dave Martino is fighting his way through the smoke. Smoke. Oh, <laughs> oh you big sissy. Canadian smoke. Big sissy. You know, you're blaming everything on Canada. Everything. You That's know, right. I'm Canadian and they blame everything on me. They call me a leftist, a <laughs> socialist. My God. Tucker's going to be blaming this on me like he did the last thing. It's all your fault, Al. Yeah. Tucker all on fault. Tucker on Twitter <laughs> is going to be talking about me. That's right. He won't. I'm too small for that. (laughs) He's got a shorter time span. So anyway. (laughs) Well, so uh, after the smoke, we're going to be talking about smoke. No, we're going to be talking about a new book called Death's Pale Flags. We have the author here, and he's going to tell us all sorts of secrets. Um, So, Mr. Gary Simmons, thank you for being here. Thank you so very much for having me. Well, so, so Gary, um, I, I have to say i i really noticed that you are really a um, a brain surgeon too aren't you yes i i suppose so no this is a medical thriller and it involves a brain surgeon but that's also what you did for a living correct that is correct so is writing harder than brain surgery well that's an interesting question uh <laughs> i i used to say or i still say i think um you can basically teach anybody uh brain surgery uh, if you have enough time, it it takes it's more a time investment uh, and a work investment than anything else. Um, writing writing isn't easy, at least decent writing, and I I'm not even sure if I can be uh, considered guilty of decent writing. But I I do know I've rewritten what I've written a billion times, uh, and uh, I guess you only get one shot at it with each patient and brain surgery. Yeah, it's not like you get to redo it, I guess. I don't know. Every once in a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, I noticed in your earlier books you were talking about, um, you know, the range of topics of, you know, burnout and education and ethics, neurosurgery, neuroscience, healthcare, like all these things were in, in one. And, and now you've gone into a medical thriller or ghost thriller, as it's called. What, why the change? Well, uh, uh, the original books um, really all circled around uh, the concept, the world of burnout, um, because uh, I was noticing a lot of burnout around me, and uh, I'd probably be disingenuous to say I didn't notice it within me. Uh, but anyway, uh, uh, there's plenty of burnout um, to be had out in the medical world. Uh, and uh, we studied it for quite a while and uh, wrote several books on it. And um, it does creep into the novel. But really what I wanted to do with the novel uh, throughout my career, I, I kept thinking, geez, people would probably like to know more about what's going on here, you know, behind the doors in the actual operating rooms, uh, what we actually do in, in our world. And, and there's actually a couple of, uh, or a few, uh, pretty decent books about, uh, neurosurgery and brain surgery out there, but they're all, uh, nonfiction and I, they kind of get a little bit didactic, uh, if I had any criticism. They're actually very good books, but, I thought it might be much more immersive um, if if I actually weaved it into a 
into a novel, into a fictional story, uh, I thought it might actually put the reader right there in the operating room holding the scalpel or, or the high-speed drill and popping off the, the skull and seeing what's underneath it. So I think that was what really started to drive me into a fictional work is really wanting to put the reader right there. And it was, I couldn't escape from my, my previous uh, burnout theme. So that uh, crept its way in there for sure. Well, what interested you in doing a supernatural or a ghost thriller as opposed to doing maybe like a straight medical thriller? Uh, I think tales of ghosts are woven into my being. My my mother, my grandmother uh, were off the boat, Scottish, and I think at least half the British uh, population is, is pretty convinced uh, of the existence of ghosts. So uh, certainly my mother and grandmother um, had many stories of their own interactions with the uh, paranormal. And so it was just kind of in me, and I enjoyed reading uh, ghost stories throughout my uh, growing up. And uh, even still, I, it began, my wheels began turning about the fact that uh, my world was constantly tiptoeing the line uh, between life and death. I, I used the analogy of a bridge between the world of the living and the world of the dead. And I, I thought it, uh, you know, if anybody is going to be paid a visit by the dead, uh, it might be somebody who's always near that bridge, always tiptoeing that line. And I think certainly my field is one where, where you just, you're, you're there all the time. And I, I guess that's how things started to fall into place. And I thought it would be interesting. Neurosurgery is so high-tech, so science-oriented, so kind of matter-of-fact to kind of weave that together with a much more fantastical story. So did you, did you draw from any experience or did you have any experiences that were, would be considered paranormal in, in an operating room or in a medical setting? Me personally, honestly, no. Um, uh, other than, you know, you see your share of witness, uh, you witness your share of uh, miracles, you w witness your share of, you know, great emotional situations and all. But uh, I'm afraid I never experienced uh, being tapped on this, the shoulder by uh, the ghost of uh, neurosurgeons past. Or neurosurgeons future. Right. That would even be more scary. Yeah. Well, I see. There you go. Now you got a sequel. There you go. How do you develop a story like this? Like, where, where do you draw from then? Obviously, the medical part and the surgery part and, and the person, your character, um, the brain surgeon, is something you can relate to and you've had experience with. But when you have the situation of seeing ghosts and spirits that you didn't, so where does that come from? Yeah, I think some of it goes back to that uh, Scottish upbringing. Uh, I, I think there were certain uh, stories that I had heard as a child that uh, I may have uh, pulled pieces of uh, into there. I wanted I wanted the reader to be able to uh, consider it. I wanted a mystery, if you will, as to uh, whether what the protagonist was experiencing was real or uh, was was a figment of his imagination. Was he going insane? So I, I, that was part of it. And and I began thinking as well, uh, what really is more scary, the the paranormal of these ghosts 
uh, or really the normal. So I, I tried to juxtapose each sighting with with some fairly horrible stuff that was occurring uh, in the hospital. <laughs> you want to tell us any hospital names that you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so your main character, Ryan Brennan, who is he and how how did you create that char- character? Is that really you or is it a part of you? Yeah, I think he's a much... Uh, He's a much better person than I am. Part of his flaw is that he's so deeply invested uh, that he loses uh, track on on everything else, and I, you know, the things that make uh, make his life worth living. And that's his family and his friends who who work real hard to to pull him back from the edge. Because whether the ghosts are real or not, he's definitely losing it. And uh, his, you know, he's due for a real crash. How did I create his being? Are there elements of me in there? Of course, probably the less savory ones. Uh, but I've met, I, I, you know, so many tremendous people in medicine through the years that I think I pulled uh, pieces out of many. Uh, I started my medical career in the army. I, I was trained at Walter Reed and was a faculty at Walter Reed, and boy, you know, just some of the people uh, that I knew there were just such outstanding individuals that I I definitely wanted pieces of of them in there with just that level of dedication uh, and caring. Uh, So, yeah, I I think it's definitely an amalgam, and if if there are pieces that are particularly unsavory, those are probably my pieces, and if there are um, pieces that are fairly heroic and and unselfish. I think those are some of my Walter Reed buddies. Well, I'm wondering how you create your dialogue. You know, I've heard that um, 20 to like 50% of people actually don't have an inner monologue and they can't hear their thoughts. So I I get curious as to um, when you're creating dialogue, can you hear your characters uh, or do you find some other way to to express what they want to express through dialogue? That's a great question. I, it's an interesting question. I, in the two parts, uh, one is um, I'm surprised that people say they don't have inner dialogue. I thought we all did. Mm, I do um, I, I work with med students and and um, and uh, uh, pre meds a lot, and uh, I always ask them that question: What's it, How is your inner dialogue? What kind of things do, does your inner dialogue say to you? I know my personal one, my own inner dialogue is a prick and is constantly <laughs> saying nasty things to me and, and uh, you know, filling me with all sorts of levels of guilt. For, therefore, for the dialogue, I can tell you um, it all played out in my mind. Now, some of it, frankly, I, I just stole from my own life. I mean, uh, dialogue within the operating room was pretty easy to recreate, and I, I frankly, I toned it down a fair amount. One of the early readers of the book uh, said, you know, do you guys really swear that much? And I was like, <laughs> oh, man, it's worse, it's worse than uh, you think. And I even toned it down further after uh, that feedback. But, yeah, no, it just, it, it plays out, it played out in my mind. It, it, it was, to me at least, the dialogue was, was really easy, but I I don't know if it's. I feel like it's believable, but I don't. I mean, the readers will have to tell me how believable it is. Well, what kind of relationship do you have with your characters? And I ask this because quite a few fictional writers will say that they um, they consider them like kids and friends and families and stuff like that. So, do you, do you actually have that same type of relationship? 
You know, again, you guys are asking really interesting questions, so you've got to give me like a half a second to think of, <laughs> to process it. Um, but that's a really interesting one as well in that I guess I'm a, a, I'm a fairly positive person, and um, I like all my characters. Uh, I, I, uh, I don't really have a villain. The villain in, in my book, uh, is really the diseases. And, and it, if you read through, you'll see that so many of the horror shows, some of the terrible injuries and stuff are caused by our own stupidity sometimes. And yet I, I, I never tried to make any, any of the uh, characters unlikable. I think because, you know, throughout my career, it didn't matter where the person came from, what their background was, what their culture was. Uh, it was important for me to care about them and, and like them. And I guess that happened with my characters. But but the original book was, I don't know, 260,000 words long. And, and I realized I wasn't Stephen King and couldn't get away with the <laughs> book that long. So I you know cut it down to 100,000. And uh, several characters... Uh, you know, got, got dropped to the, uh, cutting room floor and, and I, that was like, that was like knocking off some of my children. <laughs> I had, I had a witch in there who I really loved and a, uh, a former pro football player who I really liked. Uh, and, uh, they, you know, that was really tough to, to let them go. In a book like this, um, you know, it's a thriller, it's a mystery sort of medical thriller, ghost thriller and all that. Is there a subtext or a point that you hope people get? Like if, if, if someone picks up your book, takes it home, reads it, at the end of it, besides the entertainment value of it, and whether it came out organically or if you planned it, is there some sort of a, a theme? Yeah, I, I, it, there's probably too many themes. You know, I'm a novice at, at the, uh, the novel side, uh, and, and therefore I, I probably are fixing great hopes to this. And in the end, really what I want is a dialogue with readers. I truly enjoy, um, delving into various subjects, uh, and I would love it if readers contacted me and, and uh, and discuss various entities and various subjects with me, or I always always willing to talk to a reading group or uh, large groups. I don't care uh, about any of the subjects, but some of the things, you know, as I said, first of all, I really wanted to give a peek behind the scenes, so people really understood what was going on uh, in the brain surgery world and what we could accomplish, what we couldn't accomplish, kind of the toll it was taking on everybody. And I really also wanted, I really wanted to portray the fragility of life, just how, how darn easy it was for, for somebody to go, you know, from being a living viable being to an inanimate flesh and therefore really you know, get across the sense that we we ought to be cherishing what we have uh, in life and, and the loved ones around us. Uh, I had that burnout uh, theme in it, and I wanted every I wanted people to realize that everybody can burn out. Uh, it's, it doesn't just have to be the doctors. Uh, that uh, you know, that we live in a hyper complex world anymore, and and the stresses are there for everybody. I wanted. I wanted really to get across uh, something that I felt every day there, and that was the 
the the bravery and the grace of of the the patients, but not only the patients. Half the time, my patients were in coma. It's the families going through these horrible uh, situations, and just how darn brave and graceful they were. Uh, I I always thought, you know, you tell me or you tell me that a fam- family member has a brain tumor, I'd be screaming and throwing chairs and stuff like that. And, and you know, time after time after time, the people just uh, were amazing. And just, I mean, just inspirational. It's pretty much kind of some of the fuel that, that uh, you know, allows you to, to keep going because you're just stunned by, uh, by again, the, the humanity, I guess, of it all. And then I guess I, I also wanted to play a little with that, that interface between the, the hyper-scientific uh, and kind of the more fantastical. Because, I, you know, I, I, one of my favorite sayings of Shakespeare is that there are more things in heaven and earth than uh, are dreamt of in your philosophy, um, meaning that, uh, you know, we, 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 we're so proud of how much we know and how much we control with science uh, but we can't even explain human consciousness. We have no idea what happens to us, uh, you know, after death. Uh, and so I'm totally open for, for virtually anything. And, uh, I thought it, I thought it'd be interesting to play with that theme and therefore bringing the ghosts into it. You know, if, if, if there are indeed ghosts, it, it certainly opens up a lot of thoughts about what, what uh, happens after death. I guess those are some of the things. I could go on probably, but uh, those are a few. Well, I, you know, I know, kind of speaking on, on the same, on the same uh, wavelength, um, I, I know you go through this more in the book, but can you kind of, I guess, encapsulate what a day in the life is like for a neurosurgeon? Yeah, I, I, you know, in the, original, in the original writing of it, I put all these vignettes of, you know, big cases and and uh, terrible illnesses and terrible car accidents and stuff like that. But they they tended to be uh, one off uh, vignettes. And one of the first readers uh, said, "Oh, it looks like your life is pretty easy. You just go in, and every so often you have to do an operation." I said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! <laughs> Wait a minute. That's not what I wanted to portray." So that I think it's in the second chapter that you get a you get a day in the life of a brain surgeon, but uh, it's busy. Is it's the easiest thing I can tell you? Is it's long, it's busy, it's nothing but multi multitasking. And pe- people often say, "Oh, you know, oh, as a brain surgeon, you know, all you have to do, you're just a technician. You you just open up the hood, you tinker around a little, and then you go to the links, or you go, you know, you go have a long leisurely lunch." And I'm like, <laughs> uh, "I wish I, that would be a nice life," but I said. Do you really think you don't have to talk to patients and you know when you're when you're trying to convince them that you that you're going to open up their head and operate on it? No, we spend a huge amount of time talking to patients. So so anyway, I, it, it begins by running into the hospital early in the morning. It's usually you know very early in the morning, dark. I uh, usually run around and see a bunch of ICU patients, usually with several members of your team. There's always some fire going, you know, that, that you have to uh, try to put out. You then drop down, see your first operation patient for the day, reassure them everything's going to be okay. And then 
usually you go to a computer and start, uh, you know, trying to, trying to catch up with your computer work. And then you have to be in the operating room by seven. And, uh, as the anesthesia team is putting the patient to sleep and, uh, you're usually getting frustrated because it's taking them too long. And then you eventually, uh, get to your operation and that can go anywhere from one to 10 hours. Um, uh, during that time, usually you're left fairly much alone uh, by the outside world, although a bunch of calls will get in if they're, they're thought deemed to be, you know, really important. Um, you're usually teaching a resident or some medical students or some nurses. So like the dialogue in the book, there's a lot of the, the protagonist just explaining what, what he's doing in the operation. But then the, the minute you step out of the operating room, it's like the world can sense it. You're, you're, Phone starts going, people are grabbing you, and you just get this multitasking of a million questions at once, usually as you're running around the hospital seeing one patient after another. And, and, and usually that'll go on for about an hour, and then you go into your next operation, and you usually will do anywhere from two to four operations in a day, um, all the time in between running, talking to patients, talking to families, seeing the latest coma patient and and then eventually sometime in the you know in the evening you say all right enough is enough i got to get out of here uh and you leave and you always leave feeling like there's a lot of work left undone and that that would be a typical day wow what about the cocktail lunches and all that <laughs> yeah yeah i i i, I want to go i want to be in germany where you stop and have a couple of steins of beer in between <laughs> I, I don't know if it's apocryphal they talk about you know being in the middle of an operation and putting in a bunch of wet sponges you know over the wound and stopping and having lunch including a beer i i don't know if that's true or not but but uh that definitely wasn't uh, our world. Uh, lunch was usually about five minutes long, and you would just kind of inhale it and then run off. And I, I'm trying to I'm trying not to uh, play a you know a a sad violin you know accompanied story. It's just the way it was. Yeah, he had to shoot those martinis down. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no no lounging. I, I I think gum you know THC gummies probably would have worked a lot better. <laughs> Well, there you have it. Now you know. Did you have to do a lot of research for any of these things, like maybe some of the ghosts that you were writing about or some of the things that were in this, or was it just all from you? Uh, a, a lot of it was from me. I, I, you know, I did kind of read up a bunch of ghost stories. I read up, uh, you know, I, about I, mostly it was more in the psychiatric and psychology world. Uh, to make sure I wasn't, you know, stepping way out of bounds. Because the big question on, on this, on the protagonist is, is he going insane? And so I, I didn't, or, or is this a neurological illness? So I wanted to, I didn't want to make it so far-fetched. I guess when, when I was writing it, I, one of the problems I had was I wanted to make it very digestible for a non-medical person. And then I kept getting this feeling of, oh, my God, what if a neurologist reads this? They're going to say, that's ridiculous. Or if a psychiatrist read it and said, 
holy Christmas, Simmons, you know, what the heck is that? That That's just out of line. Kind of every so often would stop and say, oh, geez, I, I better check that, you know, this is at least plausible in the psychiatric or neurology world. Uh, and I, I think I kept it there, but they might, they might argue. Yeah. And then uh, there's some marital strife that goes on. So I read a bunch of articles on marital strife, but the neurosurgery I had kind of down. Well, we have your psychiatrist on the line. <laughs> <laughs> no. So the, now in the medical world where you work, was there a large belief in afterlife or ghosts or was it really a scientific orientated community of course it was but as in but when it comes to like you were saying consciousness and stuff and spirit and ghosts and all that stuff religion is it is it a pretty open community to that or the majority of people very just cut and dry science there's kind of two answers to this huge part of my world is neuroscience and so not not only am i a neurosurgeon but i teach neuroscience in medical school and undergrads both at virginia tech now in the neuroscience world in you know when you really drill down to the true neuroscientist mostly the phd side of the neuroscientists I, you know, I would say there is a, a good deal of atheism and nihilism about anything. You know, once the neurons stop firing, it's all over. Uh, at least when you, you know, when you talk to them on a professional level, I still believe that deep down inside, it's like there are, there, you know, there are no atheists in foxholes. I, I think deep down inside, there's probably at least a lot of dualists who want to believe even if even if they're saying to themselves, yeah, you know, it's all neurons, it's all neurotransmitters, it's all neuroconnectivity, I would imagine there's still quite a lot of people who are like, yeah, but I I personally have a soul, I you know I personally have a being uh, aside from my brain. Once you get into the MD or DO side, the doctor side, I think you you have a fair cross section of beliefs there. I don't I don't think they are as hard science as you might think. Well, there's always that hope, right? Yeah. No, you know, you, you, in, in essence, you don't really want it to be over. Yeah, I don't I I don't want I don't want it all to be bleak nothingness and I, I you know, it's it's common now for people to say, "Oh, you know, there is there is an afterlife. It's our energy goes into a greater energy of the universe. And I'm like, screw that. No, I I still want myself. <laughs> yeah, that's not good yeah, enough. But, yeah. I can't have martinis like that. <laughs> no. Come up with something else, will you? This is a very important book to you and stuff. And I imagine, so when you go through the process of, of writing this book, and now that it's published and out and it's all finished, what changes do you think um, have, has happened to you in the process of writing this book? Oh, my wife would tell you that uh, I needed to do it, um, that uh, it's some sort of, I don't know, ex exorcism <laughs> of a lot of demons that got stored up there and... Uh, uh, it, maybe that's why it went to 260,000 at, at some point. A lot of, a lot of stuff, uh, had to come out. I don't know. I don't know if it's the book or it's, I retired from neurosurgery. That's a story into itself in that I had a neurological disease myself, ironically, back 
oh, I don't know, my late 30s, but it left some residua that started getting worse. And when I started getting double vision during surgery, I, I, I said, well, that may be time to hang up the cleats. So, I, uh, you know, I, I stopped neurosurgery, and that's when I was able to really dig into the book. I had written pieces of it before. So I don't know if it's both or, or one or the other, but I'm just far more emotional than I used to be. I, I used to be pretty hard uh, that I, unlike my character, you know, who's able to let his emotions out periodically, but I was pretty hard. I could see some pretty darn nasty stuff and then just roll into the next thing. And I, I, I mean, I think there's a necessity to that because you have to roll into the next operation and not, not be uh, all shaken up. Um, but it's it's interesting. I, I, you know, I mean, I'm I'm much more easily touched now by humanity, by things. I, I'll find myself crying to a commercial for God's sake sometimes. <laughs> so I, uh, I, I, you know, there's definitely been uh, that transition. I, I I think I feel lighter. I'm less intense. Sometimes my kids, my my three kids, uh, say they don't recognize me. Uh, so. Um, there's definitely been a transition. I'm sure the book uh, definitely helped with oh, that. So it took the nasty bitch out of you. Uh, possibly. I'm sure there is plenty <laughs> of that that remains. Did you ever feel any, I don't know, lack of confidence when you went into writing and 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 giving it out to the public, like having it published? You know, did you always have confidence that you could do it? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, absolutely. My... Uh, there's an interesting phenomena again, a, a parallel. But most people who 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 interface with neurosurgeons think that we're a bunch of egotists. They think that you know our egos are titanic. And, and I would argue that you do. In, this is in the book too, I think. But anyway, I, I would argue that you need some level of ego to you know to go in and do brain surgery and expect it to come out okay. But man, our you know our egos get beaten to shreds. Uh, in our in our specialty, at least, because we have a lot of bad outcomes. The brain, the spinal cord, are not very forgiving, and so they are. A lot of times, they're injured beyond repair, and we're just trying to save them. But you know, we also inflict some damage. As a matter of fact, I, it's in the book, but it, but you know, you you guys with with the mysteries, and I know with your own books uh, there, Alan, the that. You know, you've looked at serial killers, but I, I, I consider us serial killers as well. <laughs> read an, it's true. I, I, I read an, an interesting article in the New Yorker many years ago called Accidental Killers. And, uh, it's about people who accidentally killed people, usually with a car accident or something. But, you know, they weren't drinking. They, there was no guilt or anything involved. Um, but they, they were wrecked by it. But, you know, we in my business, we do kill people. We maim people um, while trying, obviously, our best uh, to do their best for uh, for them. So I, our egos get beaten, uh, and and I I would not call us egotists. I, I would say our egos were always in need of repair. So going into writing, um, you know, writing writing nonfiction, I could pretty much stick with nonfiction, and and so. Uh, you know, we're just really making points there. And I, I, I've read so many, I've read plenty of poorly written nonfiction books that I was less worried. Um, but, <laughs> but writing, you know, 
fiction. I was like, oh my God, I, this, this is bound to fail. But the, the, in the end, I, you know, I wanted to get the story out no matter what. So I, I guess I just figured I'd take my lumps, uh, and let people have at it uh, if they wanted to. I rewrote like crazy. So I think I got it a hell of a lot better than it was. Um, but you know, I'm not, I'm not, uh, ready to be compared with Faulkner or something. So, uh, I think, uh, yeah, no, yeah, it was not, I did not go in with a belief that uh, this was the next uh, the next Pulitzer Prize winner. Yeah, my next serial killer book is about you. So. <laughs> I, I, you, I, I'm happy to provide you details. <laughs> well, I'm wondering why, why do you think there's such a perception of neurosurgeons and egotism? Is it from movies or? I think the movies certainly help, but I think. Again, it's part of the reason why I wrote the book. I wanted to pull back the veil a little bit. I think nobody knows what goes on in there. We all know that the brain, you know, is a big deal. And therefore, I mean, we immediately don't, we get immediately associated with, with rocket scientists, right? And particle physicists and stuff. Uh, you know, it's, it's assumed that we must be geniuses if we're operating on the, the locus of genius, I guess. And, and so I, I, I think there's that. And then I think there's a lot of us who are just freaking burnt out. And the way we're expressing our burnout is by being pricks, uh, by, you know, snapping at people, barking at, at, at the nurses, at, you know, just being dismissive of a lot of people, partially because of burnout, partially because we are so time compressed. You know, our, our days are so, uh, are so, compressed by so many different uh, demands being put on us that we are curt, we are quick, we aren't making a lot of relationships. We're just quickly running through various areas and barking out orders. And so it does get interpreted that, you know, this is just somebody with a titanic ego. Well, and I would think that it's got to come across. I mean, if you're really time compressed, you've still you, you've got to have confidence enough to do, and that's quite still quite a you know, it's got to be a lot of pressure on you to do try and complete a job in something like this, because like you said, the outcome can be very, you know, uh, very hard. It can be very bad. So I would imagine if you didn't have confidence, which appears to be ego, then maybe that would that's maybe what people also see. Yeah. And I think, you know, you get I, I would. So many of this darn stuff you you'd bring home too. I, I but part of the part of what was going on is you were being asked for a decision every few minutes, sometimes every few seconds, and these decisions they you know they had real life impact on on each of these patients that they were being made for. But the residents would run up to you and say, "Mr. Jones just did this," and you would just say, "Okay, do that." And and then the PAs would come up and say, "This person's doing this," and you say, oh, "Okay, do that." And you're always making these quick. As kind of uh, decisions and sorting things out, and it was just going on nonstop. So I would get home, and you know, you, my wife would start telling me something, and you would just bark out, "Okay, well, you just, you just, you know, call the plumber, you know, you just make these these split second decisions on everything that was presented to you at home." And for anybody, you know, when I when I did all my studying on relations, because I didn't understand this until I did. Um, you know, I'm, I've been told that when your spouse wants to tell you about their day, they, they're not really looking for you to give decisions and <laughs> commands immediately. <laughs> 
<laughs> Sometimes they just want you to listen. I that's a something I I guess I I never really understood. That was funny. I the the other thing that my wife would always tell me is we'd be at the dinner table and you know I you're taught in neurosurgery never to look away from the wound. Um, and again, this this probably feeds into the whole thing. But but so what you do is you ask for your next instrument. You say, "Give me a rotin nine and and you would reach your hand out and it would be put into your hand. And the idea, the, the reason for that is not for you to be impolite. It's for you to never take your eyes off the field and lose, you know, lose your place, if you will. And, and so I would get home and have dinner and, and, you know, I'd be, please pass the salt. And I would reach out my hand and expect the salt, <laughs> the salt to be slapped into it. Knife. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. (laughs) So I, you know, all these things I think probably fed into. So, so what's your intention here now? Do you plan on writing a series like this, or following through and keep keeping the same Ryan character, or not? Um, Well, you know, there's a whole other, whole other novel and a half uh, sitting there on the cutting room floor with with witches and and pro football players. So I, I may use. I, I may use that. We'll we'll see where that goes. I maybe I'll see what what the response is. I actually have a YA novel that's written, um, but it, you know it's in about the tenth rewrite right now. I I had originally originally my plan was I have three boys and I I am a little frightened of the future of the world of what what's happening with males in the in the world because women are are kind of kicking our butts scholastically and you know <laughs> you look in my neuroscience classes and it's 80 percent women and, and there's nothing wrong with that i salute it and all but i worry about idle men idle men are dangerous and and so in this grant i'm gonna i'm gonna save the world i thought ah, maybe i should write you know really engrossing uh ya novels for that that hopefully would attract men boys to read um, so, you know, it's a sports novel with a lot of sports and, and some cars and, you know, a little bit of, a little dabble of romance, but more sports. And, and that one's almost done. And I was, you know, each one was kind of going to be based around one of my sons. Uh, so I've got those and then a, then a, I've got a post-apocalyptic type novel that's, I've got a few chapters into. It's kind of politically oriented, so uh, uh, we'll see what I do with that one. So I don't know. Uh, long story short, I don't know. Definitely we'll finish up the YA novel next and then go from there. Yeah, your YA is pretty popular, and, uh, you know, politics that's, is dangerous, but it's popular. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I found out on Twitter how dangerous it is. Yeah, you have to be careful. I mean, it's a, it's a strange world now, and, uh, yeah, it's just, you just have to be really careful because especially uh, trying to put a product out or sell a book or something like that, you say the wrong thing about the wrong person, all of a sudden you're in the book bin. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I And I'm afraid I it was easy to get sucked into some of the other, you know, I, I started putting things in about the book and maybe one person looked at it. And if, if I mentioned something political, you know, a thousand people did and they're all yelling at me. So um, any uh, attention, good advertising or something? I don't know. Yeah, in, in a sense it is because uh, I'll do that and get myself into trouble once in a while. But I sort of 
it's sort of a, a good thing because a lot of people are brought to your attention, so to speak. I, I don't think it's a bad thing. And I, I, and frankly, I think um, the U.S. And, and a lot of the world just has to get over this whole thing, you know. Uh, you like who you like and you don't like who you like, you know. It's just it's craziness, you know. Someone say, if anybody mentions Trump one way or the other, you've got, this backlash and it's kind of like well it's it's crazy why can't you just like and dislike what you like and dislike you know yeah i, I mean go back to the old can't we all just get along i mean <laughs> yeah I, I, I yeah get it uh yeah it, it really it, it's frightening actually you know just at, at how we're at each other's throats right now I, hopefully we can de-escalate it at, at some point here um right now it's easy to blame you know you guys the 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 Canadians you're trying yeah. to focus yes. on. No, that's what you know, that's why we're doing it. We're 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 taking away the attention from drag queens reading in the library and and Donald Trump and indictments and all the other stuff. So we we're blowing smoke your way and then you'll turn around and you'll forget everything. Well, you're literally blowing the smoke and and so we appreciate it. <laughs> I was. I did want to make one other point for you, though. Seeing you guys are, you know, you know, the you, your main focus is mystery, right? Yes and no. I mean, I think that originally it was, but then, uh, you know, over the years we've got so many, we've branched out so many ways now. Well, I was just thinking though that that you know you think of almost every detective character in mystery novels, and I would argue that they're all burned out. It's, you know, burnout is rife. It's 95% in uh, novel detectives. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They all need to be put down. <laughs> I think they all need some work on wellness and some meditation and that sort of thing. Oh, there's not too many of those detectives that would do that. <laughs> well, that's what they say to bat neurosurgeons, you see. <laughs> well, you know, I've heard stories. <laughs> you know uh so listen um now have you got uh social media set up have you got a website have you got uh how do people get a hold of gary i am i am a total novice so of course i i bought all sorts of books on how i'm supposed to do this so i did set up a website it's garyrsimmons.com pretty easy s i m o n d s uh, no two m's and there is a d in there Kind of spelt like Simons, Gary R. Simons, uh, but uh, Simons dot com, and it's got the the fundamentals. Um, I was I I kind of built it myself, and that will become very evident. Uh, but it does have ways to get in touch with me, which to me is the most important thing. I really, I really want out of this book. I, I would love it if people read it. Um, I I don't need to I don't need to become rich from it, but I would like people to read it for sure. And what I really want them to do is is think about some of the issues raised and, and have at it with me, you know, if they disagree or agree and, and have discussions about it. And I would discuss it with, you know, any size group. Um, but I also did all the other things I'm supposed to do. I did get on Twitter and then got knee deep in, no, neck deep. No, probably nose deep in, in politics. Uh, I do have the Facebook thing. I don't quite understand the author's side of Facebook. I'm. I have an author's page there, but I, I don't, I don't really know how to use that. I have the the Amazon and the uh, uh, multiple other you know book 
related uh, places where I do have my pages. So uh, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to use all the main main desire is just to connect with. Well, people. we'll get you on TikTok here. How's that? I am on TikTok. And <laughs> <laughs> I started making videos um, because I, part of one of the hats I wear is I'm advising people people uh, advising pre meds on how to get into medical school. So I started making little TikTok videos of that. So I'm even on TikTok. That's exciting. I I, I, I'm, I keep telling my students I'm I'm jiggy with it. And they they don't <laughs> they seem don't, to understand. They don't know what that is. That's 30 years old. <laughs> <laughs> give me like I have two heads. Of course, now we're going to have all that up on the website, and everything will be uh, good so people can find it with one click. And they don't have to worry about the spelling, you know. What can I say? That's um, amazing. Well, how was how was pandemic for you? How was this writing during the pandemic? I would imagine you had to write over some of that time to to get this book out. Yes, I uh, I I love the pandemic. I, I wish we had more of them. Uh, every every <laughs> minute of it was was a dream come true. No. We had the pandemic hit just after I retired from clinical neurosurgery, you know, from doing the operations. Like I said, I, I, I keep teaching, but, um, the, and we moved to, uh, we moved from Roanoke, Virginia, where, where Virginia Tech and all that is. Uh, we moved down to, uh, Black Mountain, North Carolina. I don't know if you know the area. But it's near Asheville, uh, North Carolina, in the mountains of North Carolina. Very, just a gorgeous place. And we loved the town. And we were, we became regulars in a couple of the bars uh, because they have a lot of good uh, music here. It's, it's just a great place for music. And I play the banjo and the guitar. And I'm, I'm going to learn the bagpipes soon if they keep playing using the leaf blowers around me. So we we were really getting into the town and we could walk in the town and all that sort of thing. And then COVID hit. And so all that stuff got shut down, which actually made it easier to write. So I I had to finish up my third burnout book, a nonfiction book. So I spent some of the time doing that. And I really, again, I got, I, I really was working on the YA novel. And then it just, I, this this book became a compulsion. Uh, and that's when it really inflated and, you know, I just kept writing, 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 and then rewriting and then rewriting. Uh, and, you know, all, all we could do other than that was take the dog for a walk, but even he was getting bored, you know, with, with the walks. So, uh, so it really, it, it actually made it pretty easy to do a lot of compulsive writing. Well, I, I think it's better. We don't need to be communicating with each other or seeing each other. Humans <laughs> are terrible. Dogs are better. But as a doctor and science-orientated person, did, did sort of the behavior of a lot of people, and that, that we, doesn't even, we don't even have to touch politics, but did the behavior of a lot of people, you know, um, anti-vax or there's no such thing as COVID and not wearing a mask and all that, did that sort of behavior surprise you? Yeah, I mean, yes, in a word. Uh, disappoint might be more <laughs> uh, disgust might even be a, a, another term for it. But, I, you know, I at least got to see the flip side. Oh, you know, I certainly have just a million friends in the medical world. I, I, I actually volunteered to go back at a couple of places. Um, uh, 
But funnily enough, they didn't want a surgeon who was seeing double <laughs> uh, going back to surgery. Um, uh, but it, but it, but there was, you know, there was a lot of dedication, a lot of uh, bravery because it was brave for people at that point. When it started, we had no idea. We had no idea if we were going to end up dead. And in my in my world, in my you know, communicate on our emails. Um, a, a, a couple of people that we knew well died of COVID. And so, you know, the initial thought was, we just had no idea if you, how much you were wading in the harm's way, uh, by going into the hospital every day. Yet everybody did it and they did it, you know, without, uh, much pushback. So I, I got to see that side a lot. The, the, and, and then, you know, the, the fact that they came up with a, a vaccine in a year just blew me away. I, I, you know, again, talk about heroic efforts. Um, I, I just was stunned because I was telling my non-medical friends, yeah, I mean, it's going to be years. It's going to be years before we have anything because that's the way it used to work. Um, so there were, there were huge positives. And then when we kind of got these waves of, you know, deniers of this and that. I, I, it was, it was very disappointing. I think the messaging left a lot to be desired, both on you know the political level, but really the 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 CDC and all. I, I, it, it didn't. It seemed to lack uh, quite a bit, and and part of it was an admission of, of hey, we don't know everything. This is brand new, guys. We don't know everything. We're not going to know everything right away. We are going to make wrong assumptions, and that's just the way it's going to be. I think if we had a little bit more of that, it may have been accepted uh, better in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sure. It then fell in with all the other political craziness that's been going on. So It's all your fault. I, I do blame myself. <laughs> you started it. <laughs> Well, it's that inner voice I told you about that uh, blames me for basically anything. Well, yeah, there we go. Now we know. We've learned a lot. <laughs> Not only are you a writer, but you caused all the problems we have right now, even the smoke. <laughs> I did work in the NIH for a year way back when, so I, I, that may have been the dabbling there with all those rats. I knew it. I knew it. There was something. Stop eating them. Well, anyway. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure. So uh, now, of course, the book is called Death's Pale Flag. And yes. it's written by our guest, Mr. Gary Simmons. So thank you for being on the show. It's my absolute delight. I, your questions were fantastic. Thanks, Gary. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.com. HouseOfMystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This is a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.